Genesis chapter 11. I know, you're asking, what about Genesis 10? We'll get there. But this morning, Genesis chapter 11, a story that I believe is familiar to many people. There are those who count this among the origin myths. I'm here to tell you there's nothing mythological about this story. But it's fascinating. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, it's a story that explains all the different languages, right? Therefore, it's just one of those ancient myths the critics would say. But what the critic doesn't understand is the story, while it does explain multiple languages, is not about language. The story is much deeper than that much more significant, and much more profound even to us sitting here this morning in 2019. Derek Kidner says the elements of the story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. The project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement. At the same time, they betray their insecurity as they crowd together to preserve their identity and control their fortunes. The narrative captures the simultaneous absurdity and gravity of the situation. But neither the absurdity nor the gravity of the situation were lost on the Lord God. In fact, note in verse 3, they said to one another, Come! Come, the word is chava, go to, come on. In the imperative form, we might, it's in the imperative, we might say, get her done. Let's go. Come on, guys. They say it in verse three, come. They say it again in verse four, come, come on. Let's go, let's do it. And with amazing divine irony, God uses the same exact phrase in verse seven, come on. Let us go down. He mimics, as it were, the attitude of man, the voice of man calling, come, let us do this great thing. Come, let us go down. As God seems to reply. The history of Babel is a study in contrast. Understand this going in. There are two very different things that we see contrasted here in the story. One is the intentions of man versus the purposes of of God. The language of man versus the very word of God himself. And these two are set in stark contrast as we study the history, a true history, but a teaching history as well. Jesus said in John 12, 49, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. How different might our days be, each of us, if that's how we lived? I'm just going to speak what the Father has told me. I'm just going to use words representative 
of the Spirit of God. Deuteronomy 32 Verse 47, at the end of going through the entire law of reviewing for all of Israel everything that God had done and spoken to them through Moses, Moses said, it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Do you believe that this is your life? Do you believe that the word of God is your life? See, that's even a step beyond sometimes how we think. Oh, I think it has impact on my life. I I think it's applicable to my life. I think there are words of wisdom in here that would affect my life. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me. These scriptures aren't just about having life. These scriptures are about the life. Indeed, it is your life. It's not an idle thing because your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, is bound up in his is connected to his. And this is not an idle word. God's word truly is a language manual for life, but the life is Jesus Christ. Not just a way of living, but the person himself. By contrast, man's words are blueprints for confusion. I am still amazed that we ever communicate at all. I've said this before, there's what I say and there's what you hear. There's what I mean when I say what I say and there's what you think I meant when you hear what you hear. And somewhere in the middle of that jumbled mess, we still somehow remarkably communicate. But wow, how confusing is the language of man. You know, there are 7,000, over 7,000 languages in the world today spread out across the many different countries, and in terms of country, English remains in first place. That is, it's the primary language spoken in 59 of the countries of the world. You know what's second place? Any guesses? French. French is in second place with 29 countries. How about third place? Anybody guess that one? Nope, Arabic. (laughs) Arabic is third, spoken in 27 countries. Then comes Spanish. So we got the Spanish in there in 21 countries. Spanish is in fourth place. Then it drops down to just nine countries that speak Portuguese, six countries that speak German, and then you've got Berber, Swahili, and Serbo-Croatian that are spoken in five countries. After that, you've got Russian, Malay, and Italian that are spoken in four each. And then the rest of the languages of the world are spoken in three or less countries, including Dutch. Four, if you count Oak Harbor. (laughs) <laughs> 7,000 languages, that is a lot of air for babbling confusion. A lot of oxygen for misunderstanding. All these different languages. You might think, you know, if we only had a single language, then we would understand each other. Well, they all speak English in Washington. And by the way, there is a single language, a global language today. It has an easy, basic alphabet. It's made up of ones and zeros. The digital language of computers and the World Wide Web. And it is bringing humanity together language-wise in a remarkable way, and yet at the same time, we're right back to Babel. For while computers may unify speech, by the way, there's a handheld now that can instantly translate. Have you, have you seen that? I think you can get it, uh, if you did your Black Friday deals, I think someone may have picked that up. You can, you can take it with you. Those of you going to Israel this next year, take it with you. You can translate everything Roni's saying behind the scenes. Did you hear what he said about Pastor Rick? <laughs> anyway, they, they have this kind of translation. We, we are to the point now because of the digital language where we can communicate with anybody and it doesn't matter if they speak our native tongue or not. Unification by language. Is that how it's working? All those ones and zeros that unify in terms of speech are just used to divide in terms of heart. A single language is not the answer. Well, they were speaking a single language. The world began with a single language. Chapter 11, verse 1, the whole earth 
used the same language and the same words. Language and words. Language is sapa in the Hebrew. It means of the lip. Of the lip. That which comes of the lip. I appreciate that. Of the lip. It's not of the lips plural, but of the lips singular, which means someone like me can speak. <laughs> little cleft lip joke there. Okay, so language. <laughs> sapa, of the lip. And then words. Words is Debarim. Debarim, which is speech or vocabulary. By the way, Debarim is the Hebrew name for the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is Debarim. It's the words that were spoken. So you've got that which is of the lip, and then you've got speech or vocabulary. One spoken language. The Bible is very clear with one vocabulary. That is, they understood each other with a collective comprehension. I mean, think about this. French and English, the two most spoken languages in the world, share the same alphabet. And yet, as that 20th century theologian Steve Martin once said, oof means egg. Chapeau means hat. It's like those French have a different word for everything. Two completely different languages that use the same letters. Well, here, they're all on the same page. Same language, same words, same speech or vocabulary. And what was that language? I have suggested to you before, and I believe it was, in, in fact, Hebrew. I know some linguists would say, ah, oh, no, it was this, it was that, it was the other. Some linguists would say, yeah, Hebrew is actually a really good possibility. I say, biblically speaking, I think we've got the evidence. And that is, as I've said before, that from Genesis 1 through Genesis 11, from creation to the top of the Tower of Babel, every single name we read, every euphemism, and every wordplay only has meaning in Hebrew. In any other language, these things wouldn't make any sense. The names wouldn't mean anything. So the names that we have and the euphemisms used and the wordplays laid out have expression, understanding, and meaning in Hebrew, and that is compelling. But if you know the history of the Hebrew language, you know it died out. It went away over the long centuries of the Jewish diaspora as the Jews were driven out of the land and, and culturized into other cultures, cultures, and especially after 135 A.D., Across the last 2,000 years, it became known as a dead language. Nobody spoke Hebrew anymore. However, the prophet Zephaniah said that this language, once thought dead, would be revived again in the last days. Listen to this, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. I will give the people the Ruah Sapa, that is a pure language. I'm going to take you back to the pure language. And isn't it remarkable that Hebrew is now spoken again in the world today? Well, verse 2 says it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Who are they? Well, first of all, where are they? They're in Shinar. Where is Shinar? Iraq. Mesopotamia, between the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. So that region there, which is Iraq today, is where this plain of Shinar was located, and they went there, and they settled there. Who are they? Well, if you had studied chapter 10, we'd know the answer already. Go ahead and look back there. <laughs> Genesis chapter 10, verse 10 says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Calneh, in the land of Shinar, the beginning of whose kingdom? We'll go back to verse 8 of chapter 10, which says, Cush, who is the son of Ham, who is the son of Noah, Cush became the father of Nimrod, and he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Note this, that what happens in the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11 actually takes place between verses 10 and 11 of chapter 10. So that's the placement of it. You, you get this, this genealogy running through chapter 10. Then when you get to chapter 11, we go back to talk about what happened there on the plain of Shinar in Babel 
under the oversight, under the leadership of this Nimrod. And then you come back to genealogy in the last part of chapter 11. Wednesday night, we're going to talk about this Nimrod. Talk about who he was, what he did. But, but I'll give you this much. Listen to this. 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And I believe Nimrod may have been the first person inhabited by the spirit of Antichrist. And we're going to talk about that on Wednesday night. A little teaser for you. But on verse 2 here, note that they came to this plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. They settled. The word settled literally is sat down and remained. They came to this place and said, here we are. And so they settled, and note this, in disobedience to the word of God. This is exactly what God had not told them to do. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9, 7, populate the earth, or that is scatter. Scatter on the earth abundantly and multiply in it. This was man's invitation to take part in the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah and to all mankind, also called the Noahide law, that they were to, we are to Populate, scatter, swarm, spread out. But sin loves to settle. Sin always settles. Turn in your Bible to the book of Psalms, the very first Psalm. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Psalms are right in the middle. Psalm 1, verse 1, I'll make it easy for you. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. I pointed this out before, but note, it is a walk, stand, sit proposition. That's what sin does. You begin to walk in the way, and then you hang out there for a bit, and then you sit down. Sin likes to settle. Sin likes to get us in a place where we're comfortable with it. Oh, at first we may not really be comfortable, but we, we dismiss it as, well, maybe it's not as bad as other sin, other things. So I, I can walk this way. I can go a little ways down this road, and so I'm going to walk. But then ultimately I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm realizing it's not so bad. It's not so bad. It's actually okay, and so I stand around until I'm sitting in it. Sin likes to settle. But blessed is the man who does not do that. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which seals its, yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Well, isn't that the same thing? He's a tree firmly planted? No, it's different because you're not just sitting in sin. You're sinking roots down into the truth of God's word. You're beside flowing waters. The water's a picture of the Spirit of God. And so you're stable and you're secure in this place. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. And that's the end result of the sin that settles. Settling into the land of Shinar, as it were. You end up blown away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so the Psalms begin with this great contrast of the righteous and the wicked. So our story this morning is the same contrast. Back in Genesis 11, God is not looking for settlers. He is looking for sojourners. Not looking for those who will be content with the things of this world or the way this world is. If you are discontent with the world in which we live, praise the Lord. I didn't say if you're discontent, praise the Lord. Because godliness is a means of great gain with contentment. So we are called to be content in the things of the Lord. But we're not called to settle for this life, for this earth. We are called to be sojourners on it. 
Like the men and women of faith in Hebrews eleven sixteen, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And we're going to settle there. But not now. Now we are called sojourners. In fact, Jesus calls his church that way, to be servant sojourners. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We are called as followers of Jesus Christ to be mission-minded, to be kingdom builders, not like Nimrod, empire building for ourselves, but Kingdom builders who follow after Jesus. Jesus who said, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36. He went further. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. It's a better kingdom, a greater kingdom, a kingdom to which sojourners look and for which sojourners long. And after Jesus made this epic statement to Pilate there at his trial, my kingdom's not of this realm. You know what? 43 days and a magnificent resurrection later, Jesus told his servants, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Do you realize we are here praising God this morning because people were sojourners instead of settlers? Because the word spread to the remotest parts of the earth. If you've ever traveled to Israel, you know Washington State is remote by comparison. Other side of the world. And yet the word has come this far because the people of Jesus Christ are not settlers we are sojourners. It is the nimrods of the world who settle. Bunch of nimrods. <laughs> I think it's a great word to use. I was thinking about this, too, the other day, that, that you don't really hear people, ladies, naming their babies nimrod anymore. I, it's not really a favorite name among people. I mean, what would, what would the nickname even be for that? Rod, I guess. So I don't know if there's a rod here. I, I, no. So... Better move on. Verse 3. Verse 3. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. If you've been in Iraq, you know it's a land that is short on stone, heavy on sand. Plenty of sand and plenty of tar. All the oil, the oily tar that they call bitumen. Kidner says, and it's interesting to me, that even the materials were makeshift. Huh. They had to make bricks in a fashion and put them together. Makeshift materials, and he said, but the builders were weaker still. Verse 4. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, which is exactly what God wanted them to do. Do you see the rebellion? God wanted them, told them, scatter, populate, move out over the whole face of the earth. And they said, no, we will stay right here. We will not scatter abroad. Sin likes to settle. Their defiance is clearly articulated here and diametrically opposed to the will of God. And we see this in three statements that they make. Three things to notice here this morning. First, they said, let us build for ourselves a city. A city. Make note of that. Babel was first and foremost, number one, a city for political unity. Every time Torah refers to Babel, do you realize it's the tower and the city, the city and the tower? It's never just the tower. We focus in on the Tower of Babel, on the story of the Tower of Babel. It wasn't just about a tower. The tower was the massive centerpiece. We'll get that in a moment. But it was a city, a metropolis that would spread out, a sprawling city intended to be the capital of the whole world. Let's stick together. 
Let's build right here. Let's be strong in our unity. It was a mecca of mankind's monumental glory. Let us build for ourselves a city. What was the last thing that we saw built in the Genesis record? The ark. Think about the contrast between the city of Babel and the ark of God. The ark which came by God's word, offered salvation. The ark revealed Noah's 120-year faith. The ark honored the Lord God by taking him at his word. And so we see building taking place that was honorable to God. The ark didn't stay in one place, did it? Oh, until it landed in the mountains of Ararat. But a very different call by the word of God in the type of building God is interested in as opposed to the type of building man is interested in, so we should never build. I'm not saying that. God is not opposed to building. God's not opposed to effort. He's not opposed to ingenuity. The question is, is how? In fact, how and what we build will reveal who we trust. How and what we build will reveal who we trust, whether we trust in ourselves or we trust in God. What we do with what he's given us, with the materials at hand, will reflect whether or not we trust him. Or prefer the words of man. If we're listening to the words of man, we're building the city of Babel. If we are listening to the word of God, we're building an ark of salvation. Come on board, we would say. Join us in this ship of salvation by the name of Jesus Christ. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who built it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early. I used to say amen to that when I was a teenager. (laughs) It is vain for you to retire late to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Again, it goes to the attitude in the heart of the building. Whatever you build, however we build, and I'd like you to turn now back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Again, how and what we build reveals who we trust, whether we trust ourselves We trust the words of man or we trust the word of God. And Paul addresses this specifically, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. He said, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ. There's your firm foundation. There's a place to be established in and upon Jesus. But Paul says, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that is things that last, or wood, hay, straw, that is things that burn, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Yet he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Note that Paul is talking to believers. This is not a statement of those who are saved and those who are lost. This is a statement of those who follow Jesus, who believe in Jesus, and who decide to build one way or another. You can be a follower of Jesus Christ and build your life on the words of man. You can do that. All kinds of philosophy out there and science, all kinds of intelligence, men coming up with brilliant theories and ideas, and you can build your life on that. And Paul would say it's wood, hay, and straw. 
or you can build your life upon the word of God. Again, talking to believers, you have that choice. You can do either one. And if you build on the, on the intelligence of man and the education of man and the erudite of society, if you say, I want to be one of those, you can do that, but it's all worthless. Or you can build your life on the word of God, which is eternal. My words will never pass away, Jesus said. So Paul says there's going to be a difference, and you'll see what happens. Some will be saved, yet as through fire. Some are going to arrive in the clouds with Jesus on that day, and their pants are going to be smoldering. <laughs> but they're there. Wow, I guess I should have listened to God's word. Can I encourage you, don't be one of those. Not just about the burning pants, hot pants, I guess you could call them. Little throwback 60s joke there. Can I encourage you? Be about the Word of God because there is reward coming, there is blessing coming, there is rejoicing coming. And to arrive with Jesus on that day, and not even to say yourself, but to hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You kept my word. You kept the perseverance of my word. You listened to my word. You, you lived your life. You built your life. On my word, on the word, and the word is Christ Jesus. Let's live that way. What a better way to live than, than any other. Of course, then Paul says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if the Spirit of God dwells in me and I live my life by the word of God, then what I build should reflect that. What I build can reflect that. Part of the challenge for all of us this morning is think about what have we built? Now, if you're looking back at a lot of wood, hay, and straw, guess what? You're here this morning, you're still breathing air, there's time to build with gold and silver and precious stones. You are still in the place where you can build on the word of God as we take in the word of God. See, again, the opposite is you can build a life for yourself. A lot of people do. A cozy hutch, a career, a company, even a church, I think about this from time to time. God has built here a church. Does this church reflect him? Is this church reflective of the word of God? Have we trusted in him? Have we built by him? Are we listening to him? Are we in the word of God? There are times I, I think, boy, we're, Maybe we've strayed a bit. We've got to get back to the heart of the word of God. We've got to stay focused on the word of God because regardless of any structure that we build, whether it is a business or maybe your family or something else in your life, regardless of the structure, if you build without Jesus, all you'll be left with is an empty temple. Speaking of temples, back in Genesis 11, the second thing they said in verse 4 is, let us build a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Why? Some suggest, and I find it an interesting thought, they were trying to build a tower that would be high enough to withstand the next flood. Oh, wait, wait a minute. No, but, but God said he wasn't going to flood the world again. Yeah, but these people were not building with faith. They were building in self-preservation. So it's likely, and if you've ever seen artist reconstructions of the Tower of Babel, you would be absolutely amazed. Let's build a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Well, history and archaeology reveal something far more sinister than simply a rescue mountain to escape the next flood, as it were. Secondly, note this, Babel was not only a city, it was a temple. Babel, the tower, was a temple for pagan astrology. The tower of Babel was a ziggurat, a temple-crowned artificial mountain. By its Sumerian name, Edamenanki, which literally means temple of the foundation of heaven and earth. It has massive or had massive terraced towers building upward. 
It's in ruins today. Those who believe, as I do, that, that the ruins of Babel are still there in Iraq, that you can see them, those ruins of that great ziggurat, and they've found many ziggurats around the area, all of which bear the signs of the zodiac and signs of pagan worship. Signs of the zodiac. Wait a minute, but, but, but God, God did say, didn't he, Genesis 1:14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. The zodiac, signs in the heavens. And Christians today are very interested in those signs. We've talked about, over the last few years, some very interesting signs in the heavens as, as they represent perhaps things that the Lord wants to alert us to. I, I do want to say, though we've talked about those things, we always talk about them with the Bible wide open before us. Be careful because it's really easy to get wrapped up in what we think the stars may be saying. If you're giving me a choice between reading the stars or reading the word, I'm going to choose the word. Because the stars, yeah, they are for signs and for seasons. But listen, get this. Understand about the stars in the heavens. These heavenly lights are signs to direct people to the glory of creator God to worship him. They are not to be read for themselves. They are not teachers of the future. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 26 says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power and not one of them is missing. Or Job 38 Verse 31, where God said to Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over all the earth? As beautiful as the stars may be and as fascinating as the constellations may seem, God is the one who made it all. And it's all about praising him as creator God, looking not to the stars, but to the one beyond the stars who created the stars and ordered the stars, the Lord himself. But the ancient ziggurats, these things were built for worship and faith in the stars. They were pagan. And people still do this, still try to read the stars. It, it, it's humorous if it weren't so tragic that those who believe in the signs of the zodiac today, well, I'm a Virgo, well, I'm a Pisces. You know, all of those zodiacal signs, <laughs> just made up a word, all those signs are different now than they were when they were written this way in Babylon. So if you're reading your astrological sign online or in the paper, it's wrong. It's changed since then. Either way, it doesn't matter. Paganism. Paganism is now among the fastest growing religions in America, which is still something that stuns me. I never thought I would see the day when Wicca, witchcraft, paganism, spiritism, and the like would be so fast-moving in this culture. And Babylon was the birthplace. Babylon was the birthplace of all pagan idolatry and the occult, which is why John calls it in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 5, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, because Babylon gave birth to all paganism in history. That's where it started. It started with a guy by the name of Nimrod. We'll talk about him again Wednesday night. But this great tower wasn't just a tower to reach the heavens. It wasn't just a, a tower to provide a, a safety from a flood. This tower was a place of pagan worship. This tower would have high priests of Nimrod's paganism on the tower. People could go to the tower to worship the stars. The high priest of the pagan religion, do y'all remember this? Remember what his name was historically? 
Pontifex Maximus. Now we did that teaching. That was Revelation 17. If you want to go back and listen to that, do that. Point is, this tower was pagan in its inception and in its ideals. So they said, let's build for ourselves a city where they could settle. Let's, let's build a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And thirdly, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. And the third thing to note about the city and tower of Babel, they were built for prideful humanity. See, at the core of all this, do you realize, this is interesting, do you realize that at the base of paganism is pride? The paganism really isn't about being spiritual, it's about pride. That's the vast difference between any other religion and Christian faith, because Christian faith is not about pride. Christian faith is about Jesus Christ. Christian faith calls us to utter humility before the Lord Jesus Christ. All other has pride at the base. And the city and the tower were built for that. Ever wonder how big the Tower of Babel really was? The tallest building in the world right now is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's 2,717 feet tall. It literally towers above all the other buildings in Dubai. It's followed, secondly, by the Shanghai Tower, which is 2,073 feet tall. Right now in New York City, the One World Trade Center is 1,776 feet tall. 1776 was the idea there. So those are tall buildings. Mankind loves to build tall buildings. We know what happens to tall buildings. We have seen in this country how easily they can come down. But the Tower of Babel, the Book of Jubilees, the Book of Jubilees is an extra-biblical book. It was found among the books, the works, the scrolls in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It is an ancient book, and by the way, many of the first century church fathers referred to the Book of Jubilees, considered it an historically accurate book. Oh, not scripture, not divinely inspired, but the book of Jubilees had history in it. And many across the ages have looked at that and said it's, it's accurate history. Well, knowing that, understand this, that the book of Jubilees measured the Tower of Babel. Tells us how high the Tower of Babel was, 5,433 cubits. Well, how tall is that? Well, the Dubai Tower is 2,717 feet high. <laughs> the Tower of Babel would have measured in at 8,150 feet. Oh, come on. Way back then, they couldn't do things like that. Oh, they've, they did things like that that we don't even know how to do today. I've told you before, you go to Israel, you go to Jerusalem, and you look at how they built the temple, we can't even figure it out. We cannot do what they did, even in the building of the temple complex in Jerusalem. 8,000, that's a mile and a half into the sky, my friends. This tower was absolutely massive. Dennis Prager says, nothing has changed with human nature. To this day, countries vie with one another to build the tallest building in the world for no other reason than to become the country that built the tallest building in the world. To make a name for ourselves. But having the tallest building in the world says nothing about a country other than that it has the tallest building in the world. <laughs> Babel, as they built, this is the rebirth of humanism post-flood. This is the centerpiece of the humanocentric world. Let's build this for ourselves. Let's make a name. Think of it. Think of it. We build this massive city, this great population. We build this tower this is a place of great pride. It's like what happened before the flood. What was that? Cain went out and he built a city and called it Enoch. Dedication. Yeah, I'll build something for myself. I'm going to make a mark. Leave my name here to be known or the name of my son. We're going to build this thing up. And people pile upon each other to rise to the highest, proudest position on the earth. Just listen to this. Isaiah Chapter 2, verse 11 says, The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, 
and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols will completely vanish. This city, this tower, it was idolatrous in terms of the worship of man. Let's build a name for ourselves. And mankind sees glory in building up the self, in self-pride, in love of self. God sees things quite differently. Referring to Babel, referring to Babylon, Revelation 18, 5 says, her sins have piled up as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. We think we're building a glorious structure when really it's just sin upon sin upon sin of the pride of man building up toward the heavens. By the way, God's city works completely differently. What do you mean? We build up. Revelation 21 verse 10 tells us John was carried away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Man tries to build up. God's glory comes down. Verse 5, the Lord came down. I like that. Now, some say that is an anthropomorphism. That is a, a, a human description of a divine event, a divine occurrence. God is not man, but God coming down in, in form like man. They're, they're saying that there's, there's a similarity, and they're using human words to describe the coming down of God. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. This is so ironic to me. Don't miss this. They were building up to the heavens, and God still has to come down to see what puny man is doing with his tinker toy tower. <laughs> and if truly the Tower of Babel was 8,150 feet into the heavens, a mile and a half up, even if it stretched that high. And I'm not saying that it definitely did. I don't know. I wasn't there. But even if it went that high off the earth, God still had to come down, really come down, to see what man was up to. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You know what I love about God? He skips right by the mountains of pride and goes to the heart of the humble. He comes from the highest place. He is God most high as the Bible calls him. And yet God most high, El Elyon, comes down to the humble heart to meet you, to meet me where we are. But in the story, in verse 5, the Lord isn't coming down to revive lowly spirits or contrite hearts. You don't see that in the building of Babel. And he's not coming down to inspect the impressive workmanship of man. No, God is coming down to thwart it, to mess with it. Is he threatened? Psalm 146, verse 9 says, The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Watch this, verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. This is not the fear of a threatened rival. Oh, we got to stop them. Oh, no, the Lord says. Oh, no, man might over... Come on. But he does say, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. This is not the fear of one who feels threatened. This is the concern of a father who loves 
if they keep going down this road, it will not be good. For who? For God? For them. If they keep doing this, think about what the imagination of man could do if this is allowed to continue, all of mankind in one place building the city and the tower to their own name, nothing they purpose to do will be impossible. The word impossible there in the Hebrew is literally thwartable. Nothing which they purpose to do will be thwartable. And again, I may have made up that word, but will be able to be thwarted. Nothing they purpose will be thwartable. Those two words, to be purposed and thwart or thwartable, are only used together twice in the Bible. And this is important. I think this is intentional. Those two words are used together right here, speaking of the work of man and the ingenuity of man and the collective unity of man building up a, a tower in a city to their own name. Nothing which they purpose to do will be thwartable. And it's used in one other place. Job 42, verse 2, where Job, after learning quite a lesson, says of the Lord, I know now that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Here's the contrast. The word of God sets these two at odds with each other, the unthwartable purpose of man and the unthwartable purpose of God. And those are the only two places in the Bible that those two words are used, again, together. And I point that out because the purpose I trust will not be hindered or stopped until it takes all of me. Let me say that again to you. The purpose that you trust will not be hindered or stopped until it takes all of you. Trust in man, trust in yourself, it'll take all of you. And it will ultimately leave you empty and hollow. Trust in the Lord. And nothing can thwart his purposed grace for you. He wants all of you. He is voracious in his grace. That he would have all of who you are. Take all of you to himself. And if you give yourself to Jesus Christ, and this is the great promise of the gospel, if you give yourself to Jesus, nothing can stop him. He's unthwartable. In your eternal salvation, in his grace on your life. But if you reject him in favor of self, nothing can stop that downward spiral. That's why God confused the original language to offer humanity a chance for faith in him, for faith in his grace, rather than faith in themselves, because he knew for all the faith of man and all the towers and ziggurats built, they would all fall miserably. Babel is in ruins today, along with the lives of so many who have tried to trust themselves rather than putting their faith in the unthwartable purpose of God. So political unity, <laughs> what a joke. Our country is more divided than I've ever seen it. it. It concerns me as an American. As a sojourner, I see beyond it. I have great hope, not for this nation, but for the kingdom to come. But political unity, it devolves into sides. Pagan astrology, the best it can offer is phony, false, looking up to the stars. Prideful humanity just leaves us with empty mortality. Verse seven, the Lord says, come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So fascinating. On uh, this ruin that some, again, I, I lean toward, I believe that this is probably the ruin of Babel. On the ruin, an inscription was found 2,500-year-old inscription written by none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Babel. And the inscription, you, you can look it up, you can read it. It's discovered on this 150-foot high base of these ancient ruins, and it says, quote, a former king built it. They reckon 42 ages, but he did not complete its head. 
since a remote time, people had abandoned it without order, expressing their words. Listen to that. Nebuchadnezzar knew why they had to abandon the building of Babel. They were without order expressing their words. In other words, they suddenly lost the ability to communicate. The reason that the structure stopped, Nebuchadnezzar says, is they stopped being able to talk to each other. He confirms the biblical story, which is history, which the ancients understood and were aware of. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, in this inscription, refers to the tower by its ancient nickname, which in the Chaldean is Borzippa. In the Greek, it's Borzippa. You might note this, tongue tower. Tongue tower. That's what the ancients called it, tongue tower. (laughs) Verse 8. I almost entitled the teaching tongue tower, but I thought that might be a little weird or possibly confusing. (laughs) Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And there are multiple word plays here at the end of the story. In the Akkadian, it's Babili, which means gate to God. The Chaldean, Babylon, or Babel, gate of God, heaven's gate, they would call it. In the Hebrew, Babel is a wordplay on the Hebrew word balal, which literally means confusion. Confusion. By the way, I, I, I got to share this. There's another Chaldean word for it. They call it Babaloo. <laughs> Babaloo. It's not the Cuban song of Ricky Ricardo. By the way, By the way, do you know what Babalu is? When you go back and watch old I Love Lucy episodes, Babalu, he's sitting there pounding the drum singing, Babalu, you know when he does that? Babalu is a pagan god of the Cubans. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned something in church this morning. In Chaldean, Babalu literally translates scattered. They called this place gate of God, heaven's gate, confusion, scattered, which is exactly what the Lord did with the people in that day. But listen, don't miss this. All these verses now take us into the heart of the story. Verses 7, 8, and 9. Listen again. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Who is at work now? The Lord is. And he is the point of the entire story. In fact, what you just heard, I don't know if you caught this, but it's what we would call an inter-Trinitarian conversation. Verse 7, he says, let us go down. Well, who is us? Now, the rabbis and and, and some commentary writers implicate angels. Well, it's God and the angels. Angels are never mentioned here. Not at all. Not even implied. Not involved. They are not named. Let us go down. And note this, let us in verse 7 is immediately followed in verse 8 by the Lord. Let us go down, so the Lord scattered them. Were the angels busy, and so they just weren't able to go? (laughs) Let us go down, he says. And then, verse 8, the Lord, God alone did this. And finally, note this, the Lord, in verses 8 and 9, the Lord scattered them, verse 8, The Lord confused the language, verse 9, and from there the Lord scattered them, verse 9. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord is used three times. Let us go down. And the Lord, the Lord, the Lord did the work. We're talking about an Old Testament picture of the triune nature of God. We see it right here. Now, I gotta show you something else. This nine-verse story 
And you wouldn't see this reading it in English. We wouldn't pick this up. But if you were to read this in the Hebrew, what you would discover is the whole story is written in a chiasmic structure. <laughs> what does that mean? A chiasm or a chiasmic structure in song or poetry or in narratives starts with the first and the last line and then it goes to the next two and the next two and the next two, each paralleling. So basically, from beginning to middle and from end to middle, the lines parallel each other coming to the very center. So you have verses one and nine, two and eight, three and seven, four and six, and it's written that way to emphasize the central point of the whole story or poem or song, the middle verse which bears the main idea, verse five, the Lord came down. That's the point. That's the idea. Not man built up, but the Lord came down. And it's not the only time he did. Exodus 19, verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Numbers eleven twenty five. the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses, and he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders, and when the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they didn't do it again. See, the point is, and the Bible tells us over and over, the Lord must come down to where we are. And so, Galatians 4, 4 tells us, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The Lord came down. Emmanuel, God with us. Do you remember what Emmanuel said, what the son said? Let me read it to you again. John 12, 49, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the father has told me. And after that, of course, you know, dead, buried, resurrected, then Jesus went up. But you know what? The Lord came down again. Do you know what I'm talking about? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. It is the absolute reverse of Babel. Where God came down and confused the tongues of men, now God comes down, and isn't it interesting that what appeared was as of tongues of fire? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language which is really interesting to me because it was more a, a, an auditory miracle than a tongue miracle because they all heard in their own tongue. The apostles are there with tongues as a fire above them, and they're speaking, and they're just praising the Lord. They're saying songs of praise and worship to Jesus, and all of those gathered there are hearing, I don't understand you, but I understand him. You do too? You didn't understand what I just said because we don't speak the same language, but, but they're all hearing the same thing come from these men. And what was it when the Spirit came down? What was it that he said? Oh, listen to this. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, we might say the unthwartable purpose of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He continues, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. 
Verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the gospel, and my friends, it is the gospel that quiets confusion by clarity. It is the gospel that subdues babbling with belief. The Lord came down. The Lord came down, the Lord came down, and the Lord Jesus Christ will come down again. And until he does, the words of man, whether 7,000 languages or just one, will always bring confusion. But Jesus said, John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Father, we hang on these words. Oh, every word spoken through the mouth of Jesus, by the tongue of the spirit, we cling to these words of truth and assurance and certainty, the unthwartable purposes of God. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we can hear these. Lord, that we have ears to hear. It continues to be my prayer, Father, that we as a fellowship will be speaking the gospel, declaring the words of God which are eternal, which build up, which strengthen, which come down even to the lowliest of heart. And I pray here this morning, Father, that you would speak to each of our hearts. Father, we all have built many things over our lives. Some things have come tumbling down like the Tower of Babel. Father, like the Twin Towers. Lord, like so many Legos I built with as a kid, these things don't last. And we all here this morning have built things that have not lasted. Father, we turn our attention to you and ask, from this day forward, would you build in us and through us that which is eternal? Help us to build into human hearts and lives with the gracious message of Jesus. Use our hands, Father, to build with the love that you have. Use our feet, Lord, to go as sojourners with the message you've given us. Fill us so full of your spirit that we are overflowing. Lord, that, that we can't help but build that which you desire. Build up, Father, I pray. Build up your body in this world. Not just the bridge fellowship, but Lord, your body, the church. Continue to build and work through and increase our faith Strengthen, Lord, our resolve in your unthwartable purposes. Help us to trust you all the more as we see the day approaching. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.